in Luke chapter 11, verses 45 through 54. You find this passage on page 870 in the Pew Bible. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the lawyers answered Jesus, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged to this, against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So in 2018, there were a series of essentially nonsensical and even silly academic papers submitted and some of which were published in uh, these academic journals. Uh, One of these papers that was submitted uh, contained this idea, and I'm going to give you a a quote here. This is what the paper said. It said, uh, it's talking about astronomy. It said, other means superior to natural scientists exist to extract alternative knowledges about stars and enriching astronomy, including ethnography and other social science methodologies. Careful examination of the intersection of extant astrologies from around the globe, incorporation of mythological narratives and modern feminist analysis of them, feminist interpretive dance, especially with regard to the movements of the stars and their astrological significance, and direct application of feminist and post-colonial discourses concerning alternative knowledges and cultural narratives. Okay. You know what this paper was saying? And the authors who were completely not serious, but they were trying to make a point, is that someone can suggest that you, that you get rid of the you know, math-focused hard science of astronomy and replace it with the study of astrology that is, uh, and, and through feminist interpretive dance. All right? That's what that was about, Okay. And they did it to prove that kind of people weren't really checking these things. They were, you know, you throw some, you know, you throw some fancy words, right? Um, and, and so here's a little, this is a, this is a living example uh, of, of that saying, some things are, only, are so silly and absurd that you have to have a PhD to believe them. And, the, and, and this really, this highlights, on the one hand, our increasing distrust of so-called experts, uh, it, it, but also how one can be deceived, even self-deceived, so long as the description or the wording in, in, includes lots of obscure technical jargon that sounds really smart. But you can also say something that is actually true, 
Yet it is so clouded with technical language that it becomes effectively meaningless to the audience. But either way, as we come to this text, we hear Jesus give us a warning about obscuring the word of God through expertise. Last week, we looked at how the Jesus went after the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy, how they obsessed over these tiny little rituals invented by men and neglected the things about which God truly cared. And he, and, and he, and he went on about their pride and, and how they loved the you know, social rank and being treated important in public. And Jesus went so far as to declare them to be the cause with all their obsession over purity that they were actually the cause of spiritual defilement of those who would follow them and do what they said. And, and then a lawyer who's sitting there at, at the meal as well objects, saying, hey, by saying all this stuff to the Pharisees, you're insulting us too. And rather than correcting himself, Jesus says, and I've got a few words for you lawyers too, so let's talk about you. Like I said, be careful when you invite Jesus over for dinner. And as he lays into them, Jesus warns us against obscuring the word of God by losing the purpose of God's word and by losing the message of God's word. And then finally, as we see as the chapter closes out there, about the warning against losing everything by rejecting Jesus. So we'll look at each one this morning. First, consider that we need to beware losing the purpose of God's word in verses 45 to 46. Now, every parent knows uh, that question when your kid turns about five or six and they come to you and they say, Daddy, where do lawyers come from? And, uh, and, and the answer is um, complex, uh, uh, but who are, who are these lawyers specifically that we're talking about? Well, they're, of course, not the same lawyers as we think of today sitting in secular courts, but rather uh, they are expert scholars uh, that were experts in the Old Testament, or especially the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And now if you do a search of the Bible, you'll find in the New Testament texts that mention either the Pharisees and the lawyers or the Pharisees and the scribes but you never see a sentence in the New Testament that has, has the scribes and the lawyers mentioned together uh, because they are roughly used interchangeably in the New Testament, although the, the, the word lawyer seems to be described some kind of specialist within the scribe class. And so uh, scribes now had been around a bit longer than the Pharisees. The Pharisees had arisen, arisen during the, that, um, uh, the revolt uh, of the Maccabees uh, that came uh, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the scribes had arisen around um, actually the time of, well, first, you, you know, you had Saul, David, and Solomon uh, with the united monarchy in Israel, and then the kingdom splits, and then you have the exile from Assyria for the northern kingdom first, takes them out, and then uh, Babylon comes in and takes out the southern kingdom about 140 years later, and, uh, and then they're off in exile uh, for a period of time, and then the Persians come in and take over everything, and under the rule of Persia, uh, they're allowed to come back, and it's during this time where the, they begin to focus on, hey, we don't want to mess up by disobeying the word of God again, but we got to know what the word of God says. And so in the book of Ezra, you have the example of where Ezra, a priest, gets up and he starts 
reading and explaining the law, and they have people who explain the law. Well, it's around that time that the scribe, uh, the, 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 the job of a scribe came into being. Because if you're going to obey the Word of God, then you've got to know what it says. And so this special class of scholars arose, and they were the ones who were experts not only in the law and what it said, but also they became experts in the traditions of the elders and, and what the rabbis taught over, over the years. And so when, uh, so when Jesus goes after the Pharisees for their behavior misleading the people, um, the lawyers say, hey, you're going after us too, because guess who the Pharisees leaned on? when they were doing their teaching, and they're saying, you've got to obey this rule and do this thing and do that thing, and they would say, My, the scribe over here will back me up because I'm working with what he says. And so the scribe was the, 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 you know, the PhD in the law that they would refer to as their authority as to why they were right. And so the lawyers say, look, you're insulting us. Now, to insult here, it, it basically means... You're saying evil things about us which are not true. Now, Jesus is going to issue three woes, as he did with the Pharisees, these, uh, la- these basically laments uh, of, of judgment uh, for, for the lawyers, just like he did with the, for the Pharisees. But before we get there, we have to ask ourselves, you know, are, are we prepared to ever receive the reproof or the rebuke of Jesus? That is, if, if Jesus were to rebuke us, would we receive it? How would we receive it? Because you go look at Ephesians, I mean, sorry, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and Jesus has some rebukes for the church. He has some reproof, corrections for the church. And the question is, will we receive them, or will we have the response of the lawyers and the Pharisees who say, no, you got it wrong? Because when the lawyer points out that Jesus is insulting him, he's giving Jesus the opportunity to correct himself. I mean, imagine that, telling Jesus, the Son of God, well, I'm going to give you a chance to reword that, right? But Jesus says these expert teachers who have their doctorates and their degrees have lost the purpose of the Word of God, what it means to teach the Word of God, and instead they are, uh, are, they are hypocriti- hypocritically burdening the people of God. Now the burdens here are not the commands of God themselves, but all of the man-made traditions and the washings and all the extra rules, uh, the traditions of the elders that have been added on. The lawyers make all these elaborate proclamations about what is required for everyone else to do, and they conveniently, uh, you know, create loopholes for themselves, or they just simply don't practice what they teach. Furthermore, after laying these burdens on the people, Jesus says, you, you don't lift a finger to help them fulfill all these commands that you gave them. They tell them that, you know, they must do all these things in order for God to be pleased with them, in order for, uh, for the nation of Israel to be restored. Uh, and, but when it comes to actually doing them, the lawyers are nowhere to be found. Now, we need to be careful here because Jesus isn't saying that living as the people of God is burden-free. Paul in Galatians speaks of the normal burden that every able-bodied person is required to carry. 
Yet he also spoke of Christians who would need to come alongside one another and help carry one another's burdens. Even Jesus, when he was inviting the heavy laden to come and find rest for, for their souls in him, he still said that his yoke was easy and his burden was light, but he didn't say he didn't have a burden. He just said it was lighter than the, the law and what the, what the lawyers was, uh, were putting upon them and the Pharisees. And so we don't want to make the mistake to think, say that, to think that Jesus is saying there's no commands of God that we need to follow. And, but we need to watch out for is adding commands onto the commands of God in such a way that rather than sharing burdens or relieving burdens, we're simply adding burdens to people. And this means that pastors have to be very careful and very clear as to what it is that God requires. Right? Be very careful when, when, you know, what follows the words, thus saith the Lord, is not thus saith the pastor. This, and, and, and we have to be equally clear about the difference between a command of God and possible applications of the command of God in the lives of his people. Because uh, it, when we talk about studying Scripture, reading the Bible, understanding it, what we say is there is one meaning of a text, right? A text cannot mean what it never meant, right? We can't invent new meanings and just apply them because words have changed over time. We have to go, no, the text had a meaning at that time, and that's the meaning of the text. But the application of that text may look very different at different times depending on the context, I mean, think about this. There was a time in the late 80s where you showed your commitment to God by throwing out or burning your cassette tapes of the band Journey, right? That was invited to do so. That's how you showed how, because you would take these, these evil, satanic, godless, heathen, you know, rock bands, and you would come and bring this stuff down, and we'll set it on fire or throw it in the garbage, right? That's how you showed that you were truly, and if you didn't, I mean, I bet you there were people that went out and bought tapes just to bring them down front, okay? Just to show how holy they were and how committed to God they were. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Where the, what it comes along and says, the Bible says, you know, don't get drunk. Absolutely. But then, you, then someone comes along and says, if you touch a drop of alcohol, you are an absolute sin and you're not a Christian. Okay? And it's like, okay, well, no. Right? That is not how that works. Right? It's that kind of stuff. Now, there are some times where some applications may have made sense in that particular moment, may even have been necessary at that time period in order to be faithful to the word of God in that context, but have since become just kind of these symbolic totems that just people do or engage in in order to say, oh, yes, this is what it means to be committed to God. But we need to remind ourselves that God's word is not about establishing these shibboleths or different ways to show how committed we are. God's word is revelation. God's word is the revelation of himself to his people. And so the purpose of God's word and the teaching of God's word is to bless the people of God, to not only inform the people of God, but by the Holy Spirit, transform the people of God after the image of Christ. And so we teach the word of God in order to increase 
the worship of God qualitatively in the hearts and mouths of the people who trust in Jesus, but also to increase the worship of God numerically by adding to the number of Christians worshiping by those who receive the gospel because they hear it and they receive it and they believe it. But we lose the, the purpose of teaching the word of God. We lose the purpose of the word of God when we start throwing on a bunch of unbiblical rules and demanding obedience to them, even above the commands of God themselves. So we need to be very careful as we do this. And Jesus says, also beware losing the message, not the massage, typo, the message of God's word. And, and, and he spends a good bit of time here in verses 47 to 51 describing the bloody denial of God's word. Because the prophets were the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, they were Old Testament prosecutors for God. They would teach the word of God, certainly. They would proclaim the word of God, but they also would prosecute the people of God when they were in disobedience to the word of God. They, and, and they would, so the, oftentimes they were called, I mean, if you go read Isaiah's call, it's terrible. He says, I, I mean, we do the Isaiah 5, you know, he goes before the throne and here am I, send me. And then we're like, and I don't want to read anything past that, right? Because right as soon as I read past that, it's not just as glorious, you know, I'm going out onto the mission field. It's, he says, yes, and behold, I'm going to send you out and you're going to proclaim my word and they're not going to listen to you. They're, in fact, they're going to hate you and despise you and mistreat you. And you're just like, and that's your job, Isaiah. Get out there. Go show them, you know. But the rejection, the jailing, and the killing of God's prophets was a rejection not of just the prophets or the messengers, but of God and his word. And Jesus says that the tombs that they have built for the prophets aren't really honoring the prophets. Because their fathers killed the prophets. Because their fathers hated God's word. And now these elaborate tombs are just ornate dressing, finishing up the work of their ancestors. The sons, like their fathers, are completing the murderous work of their fathers to ensure the message of God stays buried. But a burial cover-up isn't going to work. Jesus says that the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, from A to Z, essentially, will be accounted for from the unbelieving generation. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, uh, but a lot of it actually has to do with uh, understanding about what does he mean by Abel to Zechariah. Uh, this really has to do with how our, um, the English Bible and the Hebrew Bibles are organized, because our Bibles, our Old Testament, the Old Testament and the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, um, the, called the Tanakh, it, uh, we begin in the same place with Genesis, but our Old Testaments end in different places. And so our Old, our old, our old Testament ends in Malachi, um, but their Old Testament ends with Chronicles. And so it ends with the history of the people of God. And so and at the end of that history, they don't have First and Second Chronicles, it's just one book called Chronicles, and it's, uh, there's a prophet named Zechariah, and Zechariah is murdered. Um, he's a prophet, and, and so in, uh, in Second Chronicles 24, 
his last words as he's being killed is, may the Lord see and demand an account. And so, and, and so Jesus is referring to Abel. The, uh, this is the brother of Cain who was killed in, in Genesis 4. And he refers to him essentially as a prophet. We knew he was a righteous man, but he refers to him as a prophet, saying so from Abel to Zechariah and providentially in English, A to Z. <laughs> but <laughs> it really worked out well. Um, but uh, but what is so he's saying, look, the blood of all the prophets is represented by your hatred of the word of God, and it will be accounted for still. But who is the generation that will have to be, who will have to give account for this? Well, is it just the first century Jews? Um, several scholars uh, persuasively argue that this evil generation, it, it represents the character of a people who are unbelieving, rejecting, and unresponsive to God and are oblivious to the coming judgment. And by that description, you would say, that sounds like a lot of people today, and that is true. It's not a time marker. It is a marker of character. But are the lawyers, scribes, and you know, the Pharisees, are they really those who walk in the murderous ways of their fathers? Well, consider that not only do they not receive the message of the prophets that they claim to honor with all their fancy tombs, But who is it that is going to lead the charge in killing the Messiah? Prophets and scribes, the lawyers. And so they lose the message of God's word by killing his messengers. And secondly, in verse 52, we see the scholarly obscuring of God's word. And this is is much shorter, but what an indictment. Because he says, you've taken away the key of knowledge. The lawyers were supposed to unlock the knowledge of God, to make his commands clear and understandable so that God would be worshipped and loved and obeyed by his people. But instead, Jesus says they have taken away the key of knowledge from the people and even from themselves by reinterpreting, overinterpreting, and misinterpreting the word of God. And by obscuring the word of God with their expertise, they not only do harm to themselves, but like the Pharisees, they're harming those who listen to them, who look to them as the authorities, the ones they're supposed to follow. And that they have, in fact, prevented others from gaining that knowledge of God and even entering the kingdom of God. One scholar put it powerfully. He said, instead of opening up the treasures of knowledge, the lawyers close them fast. They turned the Bible into a book of obscurities, a bundle of riddles, which only the experts could understand. And the experts were so pleased and occupied with the mysteries they had manufactured that they missed the wonderful thing that God was actually saying. And so rather than than obscuring the word of God, we must hold on to the word of God. As you go into the New Testament, you read it, you, you see that it didn't take long uh, once the gospel began to spread for the message to start getting corrupted or lost. In Galatians, Paul warns the church about other competing false gospels. False gospels. I mean, it, it hasn't even been out that long. You know, it's, it's like when, because we watch a lot of... Um, um, children's cartoons, and so it's like there's always some Disney movie that's going to come out, and then there's like 
three knockoff cartoon versions from like India that are like terrible, but they're all named like, um, you know, it's like if there's like Cars 3, then they release this like terrible like called Vehicles 4, you know, just like something to try to get you to watch it. It's like that kind of thing, but it doesn't take long. It just pops right out there, right? And it's just like that. The gospel's out for barely any time at all before false gospels start arising. And people are declaring already in Paul's time that God or an angel had told them this thing or that thing that was contradicting the gospel as revealed in the word. And Paul was clear. He says it doesn't matter who said it. What matters is whether the message contradicts the gospel as revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ as prophesied about in the Old Testament. The word of God, the gospel, is what Paul goes back to. Further, there were those who came along and said that the gospel was was great and right and true, but you just got to add on to it uh, these commands. You got to keep the Old Testament stuff too. And you got to get circumcised. You got to keep the food and dietary laws. You got to do all this stuff because God, you know, he, He didn't write all this stuff in the Old Testament for no reason, just for us to stop. And so Jesus is great, but you got to have the rules that, that, that go along with it. And, and, so, and so Paul, in, 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 he sees in this essentially the gospel message getting lost. And so he, he wrote his letter to the, in Galatians, as he did in so many of his letters, to essentially just, just clear the air with the ringing of the gospel bell. That, that by its distinct resonance, the gospel will just clear out the noise. It's amazing to observe even people today who claim to, in the name of Jesus, in the name of grace, in the name of the love of God, turn right around and tear the Bible apart or try to. Or they add on rules saying, if you don't follow these extra rules, then God's going to be displeased with you. They claim that they're fixing the problem, that they're helping us update our message and our approach. But in the end, they're just doing the same thing that Jesus accused the lawyers of doing. They are denying and burying the word of God and building fancy tombs on top of it. They're bringing people in to deny their entrance into the kingdom of God. And so as a church, we are called to hold on to the message of grace, to zealously guard it, closely, even as we hold it out for all who will receive it. And the third warning we have in this passage is to beware losing everything by rejecting Jesus. This one's very short. But just think about this question. What should, we know what their response was, but what should have been the response of the lawyers and the Pharisees? What should have been response, the response of those who heard the prophets all those years before? We know what the wrong response is. It's the response that Jesus gets, a response of rejection and anger. Response of the, clearly Jesus must be wrong. Clearly Jesus must be mistaken. Clearly the word of God must be wrong. Because I feel so strongly about this. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they put a full court press on Jesus, pressing him about as many topics as they can think of. Because, you know, that's, that's how you get people to trip up. You just you get them talking about all kinds of different things and try to get them to trip them up on something. 
and they're obviously going to fail at this. But, they, but just think about that. They want to hear Jesus so they can destroy him. They want to hear Jesus so they can discredit him, so they can bury him, and one day build a nice tomb for him. And many people do the same thing today. There are those looking for reasons to reject the faith, going from one topic to another, to another, to another. And there are certainly those who have genuine questions, and we want to invite those questions in. But there are also those who are only looking to confirm their unbelief, to confirm their rejection. They do it because the word of God, even the good news, at the, at the very end of the day, the gospel bothers them. It disturbs their minds. And so their only response is to bury it so they don't have to deal with it. But let us consider the right response, which is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is the the response that should have been had when the prophets proclaimed the the problems that the people had and when they confronted them. Repentance and faith is what the lawyers and the Pharisees should have responded with to Jesus' rebuke. Repentance and faith is a response of us. It's not of us shaking our heads at the Pharisees and the lawyers and be like, yeah, they're dumb. Yeah, they're the bad guys. The response for us is to search our own hearts, especially as elders, deacons, as pastor, to ensure that we are not guilty of what the lawyers and the Pharisees do, adding on the extra rules. And so we need so the proper response then is repentance. Repentance from our own twisted ways and our own unspoken rules. Repentance from our own modern versions of works righteousness and obscuring and bearing the word of God. And we need to repent in whatever way and to whatever degree it applies. But also faith. We need to trust in Jesus, the word made flesh, to trust in his gospel, to trust in his grace, trust in, in, in the word of God as a whole. Because we are committed to the word of God, especially the gospel, and especially when it convicts us of our sin and our faithlessness. We are committed because God has committed to us. He has committed to us the life and death and resurrection of his own son. And because of that, we put to death our pride. We put to death our dependence upon the world and our love of it. And we hold on to Jesus. And so we need to avoid losing the purpose of God's word and losing the message of God's word. And the best way to do that is to be clear about the gospel, about what it is and what it means for you and for me. And so we need to cast aside the things that would distract us from the reality that Jesus is the Savior of sinners in whom each of us trusts to save us from our own sins and the judgment we deserve. And this has set us apart as children of God with a promise of eternal life and inheritance in the kingdom of God. That is the gospel. That is the message of the word. That is the glorious truth of his love. And so we need to hold on to that, to throw off the stuff that gets in the way of that, that grand and glorious truth, so that the people of God may be blessed that the grace, and that the grace of God may spread throughout our community and throughout the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
that in Jesus indeed we have life and hope and peace and joy. And Father, we do pray that wherever we have gone astray, where we have acted like the lawyers and added on the extra rules and added on the things that say, this is what holy people are, this is what the righteous people are, this is what good people do, that is out of accord with your word, that are the add-ons, Lord, we pray you would just strip that away and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Refresh us in the grace of the gospel that we may hold it close so that we may love you and that we may obey your commands. Lord, may we take your word seriously. May we receive it truly. And Lord, when the time comes where Jesus levels his corrections, his reproofs, and even his rebuke to us, may we receive it with repentance and faith. For therein is life and grace and joy and peace for the one who trusts in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.